This is Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. Welcome back to the Redeeming God Podcast. Let me ask you something. What is it that the church is supposed to do? sometimes feel that if I were to ask that question to 10 different Christians, I'd get about 15 different answers. Um, You know, are we supposed to send out missionaries and evangelists to share the gospel? Yes. Uh, Maybe attract the unchurched to our Sunday morning service so that they can hear about Jesus? Uh, Maybe uh, community involvement so we can serve the poor? How about political involvement? Is that something we should be doing to help direct the church, the direction of our country? towards the values of the gospel, of the kingdom of God? Maybe provide better worship experiences for believers and opportunities to help them train and teach their families about Jesus. Maybe it's high-quality Bible teaching so that Christians can grow in the knowledge of Scripture. What, What is the church supposed to do? Well, thankfully, in Ephesians 4, 14-16, God, through the pen of Paul, has provided some fairly clear instructions on what the church is supposed to do. There's two parts to these to this answer of what the church is supposed to do. So we're going to be looking at it in two different podcast studies, one today in Ephesians 4:14 and then we'll look at verses 15 and 16 next time. Uh, so it'll be two different studies. And uh, both of these studies are drawn from my book God's Blueprints for Church Growth, which you can get on Amazon as well, um, in digital format or as a paperback version. Uh, also, of course, we're all, all of this is part of a longer study of the book of Ephesians, which we're basically in the middle of right now. Now, before we get to the study, though, I do want to let you know a couple of things. First, I finally have got five new lessons up for my new discipleship course on Genesis 1. It's really just uh, old podcast episodes. I now have nearly 300 episodes of, of this podcast Started off as the One Verse podcast, but now we're the Redeeming God podcast. And anyway, I started off with studying through Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. Then we went to Jonah. Some of those studies, lots of those studies, are no longer available through uh, some of the podcast applications that are out there on the internet. And so some people are asking me how they can get a hold of them and listen to them, so I'm making them available. Anyway, I've added five lessons now to the, the new course on Genesis 1 which you can take by going to my website, redeeminggod.com. And there's the courses section there, just slash courses, and you can see it there. And if you're part of the discipleship group, then you can take that, of course, just get those audio lessons there uh, to download them absolutely free. One other thing is I want to recommend an an app for you. I was recently, uh, a while back actually, added to or alerted to an app called The Grace Zone. And it's a free app, completely free. And uh, they've added my YouTube channel as a resource on the app. I don't have a lot of videos in my YouTube channel. I used to try to record every podcast episode as a video as well, but currently that's just too much work for me to do. Maybe I'll get back to that in the future. But the videos I do have on the YouTube channel are available inside the Grace Zone app. There's a link in there to to, uh, watch the videos there. Uh, Lots of other fantastic resources as well in the app. Uh, from Ed Underwood and lots of other free grace teachers and and, uh, quality Bible teachers and authors. And so 
Uh, if you if you like uh, Bible study apps and getting resources through your phone, there it's it's available for free on the Apple Store and on uh, pretty much any Android store, such as the Google Play Store. There's links at the show notes section for this podcast study if you want to be d- taken directly to it to download it. But you can also just search. Go to go to your favorite app store, Apple, uh, Android, whatever, Google Play, and search for Grace Zone. And uh, that will be there. And you can download it and get those resources for yourself. Okay, so let's uh, talk about Ephesians 4.14 then. So anyone who's been around children for very long knows that they can say and believe some of the most amazing things. Uh, a while back, I read this little story about some of the, or little little chapter in a book uh, about some of the funny things children say and believe. And uh, one of them was a little boy came home from Sunday school very excited about the lesson he had learned in Genesis 2 about how Eve was taken from Adam's side. A few days later, though, he came home from school in a very distressed mood. His mother asked him what was wrong, and he said, my side hurts. I think I'm going to have a wife. <laughs> um, there's another little boy, after being told that God is one, he asked, when will God be two? Uh, in the same book, I read about a group of children who were asked what God does all day. One responded, he walks on water. Uh, another said, he lives, he lives. <laughs> A third said he organizes heaven, sending people down here in cloud elevators so they can help earth people out. <laughs> um, one of the little boys says he builds boats, all kinds of boats. Nobody knows why. He's probably thinking about Noah or something there. Uh, when this same group of children were asked what God creates, one little boy answered, God makes bees with little wings all day, probably out of mud. <laughs> A different child said, he makes grass a lot of the days. That takes up a lot of hours. Did you ever see how many pieces of grass there are? They were asked if they could name any of the Ten Commandments. Here is what a few of them said. Buckle up for safety. (laughs) Uh, Don't smoke in the bowling alley. Brush your teeth. Don't go to work on Sundays. And if your boss says she'll fire you, call in sick. Don't copy someone else's paper. Some, some little boy said, I think don't kill is one, but maybe not. <laughs> um, here's one. Uh, don't eat when you have a fever and feel like throwing up. Don't talk to strangers. And finally, thou shalt not stab. Yes. <laughs> Look, uh, that's part of the wonder and joy of working with children. For those of you who work with children, you... You have stories of your own, I'm sure. They ha- they're, they're so trusting and they have such vivid imaginations, right? But at the same time, children also have some of the most amazing misconceptions and misunderstandings. Uh, sometimes that's the result of their own immaturity and innocence. And other times, though, it's due to their gullibility, right? Children are easily deceived. They can be told the most outrageous lie... And they will believe it simply because sometimes they don't know any different. They don't know any better. There's an old Peanuts comic strip where Lucy told Linus that snow didn't fall from the sky the way most people thought. Rather, it grew up from the ground in the night like a flower, and then the wind blew it around. Linus uh, didn't know any different, and so he believed her. You see, children are easily tricked, easily deceived. Most of the time, it's cute because the beliefs are harmless or fun or fairy tales or something. 
uh, and that's why stories can captivate a child's attention. And there's something very beautiful and innocent to this, which is one of the reasons we're encouraged to have faith like a child uh, in, in Scripture. But uh, it's only cute when, um, as long as children are children. It, it's not as adorable in adults, right? Uh, children are not supposed to stay children forever. Children are to grow up and mature so they can become productive members of society. And if an adult doesn't grow up, then we say that there is something wrong psychologically, emotionally, or even physically with that adult, mentally wrong, right? They're, they're, they're immature, we say. And it's a sad state of affairs when that happens. Here's the thing, though. It very frequently happens when it comes to spiritual maturity of Christians. When people first believe in Jesus, they are born again into the family of God. They they are spiritual babes in Jesus Christ. And that's okay. It's completely normal and natural and fine and expected to be that way. But but as, as physical children age, progress in years, they're supposed to physically mature. The same is supposed to be true for spiritual babes in Jesus Christ. The longer we are in Jesus Christ, the more mature, spiritually mature, we are to become. And yet, for, for a variety of reasons, many Christians never really age past infanthood, towards toddler years. And lots of Christians are stuck in the toddler years. And so it's a sad uh, reality that in the church, there are many Christians who should be mature, but they remain childish in their thinking. Spiritual immaturity is one of the biggest problems in the church and has been for a long time. God wants Christians to become mature Christians. He wants Christians to move on from the milk doctrines right, that make us feel warm and fuzzy, and start ingesting the the meat truths of the Word so that we mull over and think about them. Author of Hebrews writes a little bit about this in Hebrews 5.11 through 6.3, and some of these, what these milk doctrines are. Uh, But it's only when Christians move past those milk doctrines and they lose their gullibility, and they start to be able to discern good from evil, truth from falsehood, falsehood, uh, correct doctrine from heresy. This is, this is the goal. This is only when Christians will start to mature. So as we're talking about doing church God's way, the way he intended, the way he planned, the way he purposed, the way he wrote about in Scripture, uh, we've learned that God's church grows as the people in the church develop into Christ-like maturity. And uh, believe it or not, this maturing process is the main activity that God desires for the church. All right? When people say that evangelism or world missions or community service or worship experiences or, or proper Bible knowledge or something are the primary activities of the church, it's really only true when those things are done within the context of Christians growing into Christ-like maturity. That's one of the things we saw last week when we looked at the model of the church. Jesus Christ is the model. God wants people uh, and the church to grow up into the model, the fullness of the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. And that only happens when baby Christians grow up into becoming maturing Christians. And so uh, one of the important parts of planning and constructing uh, the church that is God's church is figuring out what we're supposed to do. And since sort of the theme here is architecture and planning, 
Um, you may not know this if you're an architect, but again, my brother was an architect, remember? And he told me that uh, there was this phase in constructing a building called architectural programming. And the program of a building is sort of a list or uh, an explanation of the types of activities, the types of functions uh, that that building would uh, help carry out for the people who lived and worked there. And so uh, we can think of the same thing when it comes to the church. We very often talk about church programs, but very, very rarely do we consult Scripture to find out what types of programming the church should have. So I think it's appropriate as we look at Ephesians 4, verses 14, 15, and 16 uh, in this study and the next study to talk about the program of the church, and specifically these this two-pronged program of uh, helping children grow into Christ-like maturity. Um, today, we're looking at Ephesians 4.14, where we're guarding children. Children are immature, they're gullible, as we've already seen. And so one of the tasks of the church is to guard and protect children to make sure that they survive long enough to grow up into maturity. And then, of course, uh, the second part of that is helping them grow into maturity. So the, the two tasks, two purposes, two programs of the church is guarding children and growing children into adults. We're looking at the guarding aspect of guarding children today in Ephesians 4.14. Um, so the verse says, sort of to, to, to follow along with what we've already been talking about in Ephesians 4, is that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So you can even hear, with all of the descriptive phrases that Paul throws in there, this talk about guarding children from trickery and plotting, or, uh, uh, plotting uh, uh, of deceitful men. Okay, so let's just look at all of these terms here in a little bit more detail. When Paul wrote about children in Ephesians 4.14, again, he's not thinking about physical children under the age of 10. Yes, it's important that, that we protect the physical children in the church, those who are physically under the age of 10, right? They need protection too. But what Paul actually had in mind was the spiritual children, regardless of what physical age they might be. A person could be 97 years old, but still be a babe in Jesus Christ, Right? Uh, so when we first believe in Jesus, that is so our birth date, in a sense, birthday into the family of God. And uh, so they are children, who, however old they are physically, they are children in the faith. And so um, Paul does not want them to no longer be children or to remain children. We must help children mature in what they believe and how they behave. Christian maturity is not measured in how long a person has been a Christian, okay? It sort of is measured that way in physical life, right? In a sense, uh, oh, how old are you? Well, I'm 18. Oh, well, I guess you can vote then because you must be mature enough to vote. And of course, we all know that that's not necessarily true. Just because a person is 18 does not mean that they are mature, that they have great knowledge or wisdom about what life is all about. Okay, uh, and yet we still give them the ability to vote. And so some people assume when it comes to spiritual maturity, oh, well, he's been coming to church for 37 years. He attends Bible study. Um, he, he's been a Christian since he was five years old. He must be a mature Christian. Not necessarily so. Christian maturity is measured not by number of years you've been a Christian, but by having proper beliefs and behaviors as a Christian. Okay, so scripture again helps us in this, in this regard. What sort of things what, might a person believe that to, to, to show that they are a mature Christian? 
or a babe. And it's going to be shocking when you discover what some of these things are. I mentioned earlier this passage out of Hebrews, uh, uh, especially Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Uh, These three verses contain a list of six doctrines which are foundational for every new Christian to understand. And the author of Hebrews there uh, says that these are sort of kindergarten doctrines, these six truths. Uh, he, he uh, the author of Hebrews, he maybe she could have been a she, I suppose, says that in order to move on to true meat doctrines, true mature doctrines, you need to leave behind the elementary teachings, <laughs> the kindergarten doctrines, the kindergarten teachings of Scripture. Okay, so I've often found this to be a fairly good indicator for whether a person is quote unquote uh, mature or an infant still. And it's a little bit shocking to read through them, because how many Christians know what the Bible teaches about these six doctrines? Again, if you don't know much about them, that means that you are immature. If you've been able to study them and teach them and learn them and move past them, then you are moving on to maturity. It doesn't mean you are mature, it just means you're moving on to maturity. What are the six? Number one, repentance from dead works. Do you know what repentance is? How it works, uh, what it looks like, the fruits of repentance. Number two, faith towards God. What is that? What is faith? One of the reasons I wrote my book, What is Faith? To help people answer that. Uh, Number three, the doctrine of baptisms. Uh, Notice the plural there, baptisms. It's shocking how many Christians only think of one baptism, or maybe two. Water baptism, spirit baptism. There are at least seven baptisms mentioned in Scripture. Seven different specific baptisms. Interesting. Uh, Four, the laying on of hands. What is that? What's it for? What does it accomplish? Number five, the resurrection of the dead. You know, how many resurrections will there be? When, when when, When Scripture talks about Jesus being the firstborn from among the dead, what does that mean? Okay, and then six, and finally, eternal judgment. What are the eternal judgments? Uh, What will they accomplish? Who will be there? What will be the basis of their judgment? Okay, (laughs) those are the six elementary doctrines, according to the author of Hebrews. And he wants, the author wants us to move past those (laughs) and on to maturity. Mm. Pretty humbling to think about that, isn't it? I've written a book on all six of those, and like most of my books, I have more books written than I have published, and I really need to buckle down and get some of those written. But uh, I I have written a book on those six, and eventually I'll get around to getting those published as soon as life settles down a little bit. But I think it's true what Earl Rodmacher once said, uh, that that based on what we see here, it's, it's not incorrect to say that Christianity is a mile wide and an inch deep, right? There's just not a whole lot of maturity in the vast majority of Christianity. Uh, A.W. Tozer once said something similar. He said that much of the failures of our Christian experience can be traced back to our habit of skipping through the corridors of the kingdom like children through a marketplace, chattering about everything, but pausing to learn the value of nothing. Very wise words. Most of us know a teeny tiny little bit about lots of things, but we know the value of nothing and we know a lot about almost nothing. Again, knowledge is not the only indicator of maturity, but it is one indicator. And the church has great power and influence in society. And 
our, our presence is evident by a you know, vast number of church buildings and Christian slogans and all sorts of things all over our cultural landscape. But few Christians have progressed much past a you know, basic milk diet of Christian truths. And, and there's nothing wrong with the basic Christian truths. They're a great first step, but they are only the first step. We must move on to maturity. We must grow up. And again, it's not just beliefs, there's also behaviors as well. It's a proper Christian behavior is a key indicator of Christian maturity. And so uh, proper Christian behavior is also required for growth. Remember earlier in Ephesians 4, Paul revealed that spiritual maturity can be measured by involvement in ministry. Uh, This was uh, back in verse uh, 12, where every Christian is a minister. So if a person is not has not discovered their ministering, is not working in their area of ministry, then they are not engaging in proper Christian behavior and therefore have not grown up into maturity. Okay? So, so church ministry, it's, it's not fulfilled by sitting in a pew on Sunday morning, you know, while you try and stay awake during the sermon. Christian behavior does not consist in smiling happily while chatting with friends in the foyer for 20 minutes on Sunday morning. True Christian ministry and behavior... It consists of how we live our lives day to day with our friends, our family, our co-workers. Uh, it's measured in how we interact with our neighbor or the server at the restaurant, the check lady at the store. Uh, ultimately, Christian maturity is measured by love. And in fact, love brings us full circle uh, back to our beliefs. Christianity is known for its large diversity of beliefs, and and this is one of the reasons there are so many denominations. How can we know who is right and who is wrong? I think one of the key litmus tests for proper Christian theology is love. I've written elsewhere that love is the litmus test for good theology. Or maybe specifically we could say, love that looks like Jesus is the litmus test for good theology. If your beliefs do not lead you to love other people, to treat other people like Jesus did, then you can be sure your beliefs are wrong and they're leading you to improper behavior, right? Since God is love, this means that when God's life is working in us and through us, we will live with love for others. But here's the rub, though. Most Christians think they are loving, and the sad reality is most of us are not. Okay, so we can't really look to ourselves, oh, well, of course I'm loving to my neighbor. I tell them to avoid the fires of hell and that their sin is going to lead them to the judgment of God. And that's loving because I'm trying to protect. The thing is, I'm not sure we are the best judges of our own character in this regard. Sometimes we need to listen to the larger community and how they feel, whether they feel they are loved by us or not. And the sad reality here is that most people do not feel loved by Christians. Uh, Most people use terms like hypocritical, judgmental, and mean when they talk about Christians. So on this basis, much of modern Christianity can be described as immature, right? If we don't have a ministry that is leading us to love others, even unchurched, non-Christian people, then maybe we are not as mature as we think we are, because we are not living toward others with the love of God in us. Um, 
Now, it takes practice, just like anything in life, this takes practice. Like, I, I, you may not know this, but I play bass guitar. Did you know that? I have been a bass player for over 30 years. I first started playing bass uh, when I, right after high school, when uh, after our graduation, there was a couple of friends and they had started a band. Um, I must say we were pretty good, I thought. <laughs> the lead guitarist, he wrote songs. Um, I had a tape at one point. I, a couple of years back, I tried to find that tape of our, of our music. I was going to digitize it and put it online and send it to my friends, but I couldn't find it. Who knows where it is? Lost it in one of my... 23 moves, however many times I moved. Um, but uh, yeah, that was over 30 years ago that I, that I, that I picked up the bass. Um, but guess what? If you came to me to say, hey, let me hear you play bass guitar. Hey, do you want to join our band or something? Or hey, uh, you know what? Uh, I, I, can, I can barely play anything on the bass. Yeah, I practiced a lot for that first year, 30 years ago. And since then, I haven't improved at all. Why? Because I haven't practiced. Oh, yeah, if I picked up the bass, I could probably be in, you know, maybe in a couple hours of practice, about as good as I was 30 years ago. <laughs> but I haven't gotten any better since then. I haven't, quote unquote, matured as a bass player. But I've been a bass player for 30 years. I've been, quote unquote, playing the bass for 30 years. Does that mean that I have 30 years of experience as a bass player? No, it doesn't. I am an immature, I am an infant bass player, okay? Lots, again, lots of people view their Christian life that, oh, well, I've been a Christian for 43 years. Great. And how mature are you as a Christian? Okay, that's the question. It takes practice. So um, it, it, no matter how many years you've been a Christian, that is not what determines maturity or not. So this is why Paul is writing Ephesians 4.14. There's a long introduction to get back here. But Paul is basically emphasizing the guarding of spiritual children. In order for children to mature, it is the responsibility of the mature Christians to guard and protect and watch over and take care of the immature baby Christians so that they aren't led astray, so that they can begin to grow up healthy and become mature Christians. God wants the people in his church to have correct doctrine, have correct beliefs, have correct practices and behaviors. And, and the responsibility for that is solely on the shoulders of the mature Christians so that they can teach and train and raise up the immature Christians uh, uh, and so they can get a good start and, a, and a, learn a healthy direction as they learn to walk as brand new baby believers. Uh, Ephesians 4.14 reveals that when new Christians are not adequately guarded by mature Christians, then several bad things can happen. First, they can be tossed to and fro. The idea here is like a ship getting tossed to and fro by the waves of, the, of a stormy sea or something like that. Okay, They are easily defeated. They are easily deceived. Uh, they're easily led astray, uh, and this is because they haven't yet been trained to correctly discern truth from error. They fall prey to false doctrine and those who street teach strange ideas. And this isn't a modern occurrence. I mean, we already saw in Hebrews that the author of Hebrews was concerned about this very thing with some of the people uh, that was reading that letter. But uh, it wasn't just the, the recipients of the letter of Hebrews. Uh, many of the letters in the New Testament by Paul or Peter or John or whoever was written to warn new believers about some of the errors that they were falling into, some of the even heresies that were cropping up 
in their midst, in, in their cities in which they were trying to live. One of these, for example, just, just take an example, uh, was the early, early Gnostic heresy. It didn't really reach its full-fledged form until after the New Testament was written, but, but the book of 1 John was written against an early form of Gnosticism, which was one of the early heresies. And um, in fact, <laughs> there are still various forms of Gnosticism in the church today, especially Gnosticism is a Greek word for knowledge. And so it was, Gnosticism was sort of this heresy where people, in order to be really mature, had to have a special mystical form of knowledge. They were the initiated, oh, I've received this special knowledge, and so I am the mature Christian. I am the, the initiated Christian. I have special spiritual knowledge from God. You don't, so you're still immature. When you get this special revelation, this special insight, this special knowledge, then, then, you know, you'll be the real Christian, something like that. And uh, it led a lot of people astray then, as forms of it even does today. Wasn't the only heresy in Christian history, though. There was Arianism, had nothing to do with Hitler's sadistic dream of an Aryan race. Um, it, it, Arianism was a—this predated Hitler by a long time. Arianism uh, was a false teaching that claimed that Jesus was not fully God. He was just human like the rest of us, okay? And uh, many Christians fell into that trap, and so— uh, there are some, even today, who, who believe a version of that, that Jesus wasn't God. He was just a really enlightened human being who showed us how we can become enlightened also. Okay. Later, there was the heresy of Pelagianism. Uh, Pelagius taught that humans were born sinless and through sinless living could attain heaven by good works. Lots of people believe that today. I would almost argue sometimes the vast majority of Christianity seems to believe that. In various forms. Always say, oh, we can't earn our way to heaven, but then they look at Christians who are not behaving well, and they go, well, that person's not really a Christian. If they were really a Christian, that they wouldn't behave that way. So since they're sinning, right, they're not a Christian. Well, you see, that sort of logic is indicating that good works determine our eternal destiny. And uh, it's a very dangerous situation. I believe that right living is very important. But as I'm teaching here in this episode and numerous other places, we receive eternal life by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, plus nothing. No amount of good works is going to keep you saved or prove that you are, that you have eternal life or anything like that. Okay? Good works is important for maturity, as we're learning here. And we can say when we look at someone else who, said, who, who has believed in Jesus, oh, well, they are a Christian, but they are an immature Christian. We can say that. But we have no right, we, we do not have the ability, we cannot say that because they are immature, therefore they're not a Christian. Anyway, um, Pelagius and the Pelagianism taught that uh, you could live a sinless life, and if you did, then you would attain the righteousness of God and earn your way to eternal life. Uh, it's a very uh, common type of false teaching. And we could go through church history. These are not the only few heresies and false teachings that have popped up over time. There are many, many others. And the truth is the church is always being attacked okay, by falsehood. Every wind of doctrine. Um, and the church, many in the church, tries to, try to rise against this false teaching and warn people about it and, and call people away from it. But, but many, even among the mature, sometimes fall into these false teachings. 
And so it's important, as we see here in Ephesians 4.14, for the mature Christians to do what they can to protect spiritual children from falling into these false teachings uh, and being carried away by every wind of doctrine. Okay, let's see. Uh, And the picture that Paul, I mentioned this earlier, the picture is this idea of a, a, a ship in a stormy sea getting tossed to and fro by the waves. Now, um, Paul continues this line of thinking in the next verse in Ephesians 4.14, where he describes the children being carried away with every wind of doctrine. If the picture before was sort of of a a ship at sea, this is the idea of a dead leaf falling from a tree. And you've seen these. The the, the wind comes and blows the, the leaves off the tree branches, and they twirl around, and they blow this way, and they blow that way. And and, you know, you, you don't really know which way they're going to blow next because you can't see the wind and, and the, you see it because of the leaves are blowing around. That's the idea. When, when, when immature Christians are not, don't have a good foundation in the word, one week they believe, you know, this idea. And then the, the following week, they're like, well, that was so dumb. I can't believe I believed that. Now I'm going to believe this. And they're, they're believing the exact opposite thing. And they go back and forth, back and forth. And, and, and one week they're believing something that completely contradicts what they believed the week before. And, and it just, it, it's not healthy for them because then after a while of this, that's exhausting. And then they start to wonder if what they really believe is true because they believe so many false. You see how awful it gets. It becomes very uh, frustrating on them and on everybody else. And it can be avoided when mature Christians step in to provide some good foundational teaching and education and knowledge and insight and direction and guidance and discipleship for those who are more, uh, for those who are immature. Finally, there in, um, in verse 14, Paul writes about the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Uh, false teachers are tricky and cunning and crafty. These are very good words to describe them. They're deceitful. They plot schemes and they carry them out. You want to know why this is? It's because false teachers themselves are deceived. I challenge you to go out into the world today, into the quote-unquote Christian world, and find any single teacher who believes they are a false teacher. You won't find one. You can't find one. There's no false teacher out there that thinks they are a false teacher. Everybody teach everybody who is teaching thinks that they are teaching sound doctrine. I, I've never heard of someone say, I'm a false teacher, and so you should listen to me. Okay, they don't, they don't say that and they don't think that. I what they say is, I have this great insight, and so you should listen to me. That's why all of us who are teachers should always be learning and open to the insights and and even uh, challenges from other people, because all of us are wrong somewhere, right? None of us are 100% correct in what we believe. I'm not. I am not 100% correct in what I believe, and I'm glad of that. So that's one of the reasons I'm always learning and always reading and always studying and always praying and always listening to others and always seeking out teachers who might be able to show me where I'm wrong, okay? Um, I get people every day on my website calling me a false teacher. Uh, and I don't disregard those sorts of statements. I, I consider what is said, especially if there's arguments. If they just said, oh, you're a heretic, you're a false teacher, and that's the comment, I ignore that because they have not re- given me any, any explanation for why they say that. Uh, but if they give me an actual reason, here you said this on this verse, but here's what it means, I'm gonna, I will consider that because um, 
I'm wrong in some of what I believe. I know that for a fact. And I don't know where those wrong beliefs are, or I would change them. So the only way I can know where my wrong beliefs are is when other people point them out to me. False teachers, those who are, 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 are teaching false things, most of what they believe is false, okay? They don't know it because they are convinced of the truth of what they believe themselves, okay? That's what makes them so persuasive. They honestly believe that they have discovered a set of truths that everyone needs to believe. And, 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 but the real truth is that they have been deceived themselves. I don't know if you ever saw um, that old Steve Martin movie, Leap of Faith, okay? It's sort of a, a, a take on modern day healing ministries. And okay, maybe there are people out there who, who are teaching certain things in order to enrich themselves. That was sort of the idea there in Leap of Faith. Um, uh, you know, maybe they don't really believe what they're teaching, but, but they do believe that what they're saying can help themselves. And I don't know, that's a whole nother, whole nother area. Uh, lots of false teachers are motivated by greed. And so if you see ministries and organizations where it seems everything is about money, 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 give, 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 uh, to me and my ministry, mm, that's a pretty good red flag that um, you should be careful about what that organization and what that ministry is teaching. Okay? So this is why, again, mature Christians need to be careful uh, about uh, guarding new Christians, baby Christians, immature Christians against false teaching, against false doctrine. And the only way we can do that is if we have learned through experience and education and teaching ourselves um, about what is true and what is not. If we have learned to discern truth from error on our own. All right? So this is the first aspect of God's program. It's what keeps um, the church moving forward. And Ephesians 4.14 mainly talks about the importance of guarding the spiritual children in the church. Um, the other aspect we're going to look at is making sure that once they've guarded, once they moved into maybe the toddler years or the, the you know, elementary age years, sort of, into maturity, that that is helping them grow up and mature so they can ultimately become adults, Christian adults who then can turn around and teach others. Just like what Paul talked about in 2 Timothy 4.4. Uh, teaching others so that they can teach others who in turn teach others, okay? There's a sort of this generational concept here of, of taking what we've learned, passing it on to others so that they can mature and they can then turn around and teach it on to others. In, in the church, just like in this world, children are not born and become instantly mature, okay? They need to be trained to eat their vegetables. Well, I don't want carrots and broccoli. Well, eat it anyway. It's good for you. But I don't want to study Leviticus. You know what? There's some actually pretty significant truths in there. Let's give it a chance. Let's try. Let's learn. Let's study. Okay? If, if spiritual, if physical, worldly, you know, of this world, parents allowed their children to make all their own decisions, <laughs> few children would live past the age of 10, right? They would eat licorice and candy and Twinkies and stay up till two or three watching TV and they wouldn't drink their water and they wouldn't exercise and... And half of them would become so unhealthy that, that they wouldn't make it past the age of 10. It's the same way with spiritual children. We cannot, the spiritual mature Christians cannot allow the spiritually immature Christians to determine what they're fed and what they're taught and what they're shown on how to live their life. 
okay? Because then they get cotton candy sermons and, and sure, high-energy mu- music that gives you goosebumps, and that's great and that's wonderful, but, you know, if we don't hear anything about sin, for example, or spiritual discipline, then we're going to be carried everywhere by every wind of doctrine, tossed to and fro, right? We will not learn how to walk in the Spirit. So it's very important for the spiritual mature Christians to be the ones who guide and direct the teaching and education and training and and practices of a church, because that is how children are guarded, and then that is how children will grow up and mature. New Christians, yes, they need milk, and there needs to be milk teaching, absolutely, for the new Christians. Lots of it, okay? Uh, But then Christians need to, the the immature Christians need to grow and become meat eaters, something of more substance, where they can even eventually, ultimately, learn to feed themselves, prepare their own meals. Uh, Not always get fed by the pastor, but learn to prepare their own meals and even feed them to other people. Okay, as great as children are, The main goal of child-rearing is to help children grow up and become productive adult members of society. The first step of that is guarding them because they're helpless, right? There are predators out there who would love to steal them and harm them. So we, as the adults, must protect the spiritual, immature children of the church and teach and train them and guard them and then help grow them. And that's what we're going to be looking at next time. Once they're past the guarding phase, then we help get into the growing phase where they grow up and mature as spiritual adults and then learn to help guard and protect the, ch- the children of the next generation as well. That's what we'll be looking at next time in Ephesians 4, 15, and 16. Make sure you join us next week when we look at that. Also, once again, reminder, if you want to get that Grace Zone app, I highly recommend it. I'm part of the YouTube resources there on that app. There's lots of other great, fantastic, highly recommended books and podcasts and websites and blogs and all sorts of things on that fantastic app. It's the Grace Zone app. And also, if you're part of my discipleship group, I've finally added this new course on Genesis 1, which is basically just my podcast studies from years ago when I started this. If you have not listened to those studies on Genesis 1, because maybe they're not available in your podcast app, you can now get them and download them and read the manuscripts uh, by by getting that Genesis 1 course. You do have to register when you're part of the course, uh, when you're part of the discipleship group. You have to register for the course, but it's free for you when you join the discipleship group. Okay, thank you so much. We'll see you next week when we look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16.